The SEC's job is to stop investors from getting scammed. So when people come to the agency reporting a scam, why do they say it's not doing anything? Today on the podcast, we hear from SEC whistleblowers who say their whistles are falling on deaf ears. Hello, you're listening to On the Merits, the weekly legal news podcast from Bloomberg Law. I'm your host, David Schultz. So earlier this summer, Bloomberg Law's John Holland brought us a story about the SEC's whistleblower program. He looked at the $1.3 billion the program has paid out since it was created in the wake of the Bernie Madoff scandal and tried to figure out where that money was actually going. Well, today, John's back with another story on this program, but this time it's about where that money is not going. Specifically, he found a lot of whistleblowers who are feeding the SEC tips about fraudsters and scams, but aren't getting a dime of the money the agency recoups. Today, you'll hear John speaking with two people intimately familiar with how all of this works, Bill Singer and Janice Schell. Bill was a longtime Wall Street regulator with the agency now known as FINRA, who now blogs at the website Broke and Broker. Get it? Broker. Janice is actually a trained art historian who, in retirement, switched from sifting through Renaissance archives to sifting through shady penny stock filings. Seriously. Both of them have tried to feed info to the SEC with very frustrating results, which you'll hear about in a bit. We couldn't get the SEC itself to come on the podcast, but its chairman, Gary Gensler, has said that the whistleblower program just needs more resources to be able to sift through all the tips it receives. As you'll hear, though, that's not an explanation either of our guests today buy. We'll start off hearing from Janice, and she explained why she no longer sends tips in to the SEC. Well, I would say it's kind of like the lottery, that your chances of winning are pretty much as good. I mean, everybody knows, it's not a secret, that the people who actually get whistleblower awards are, for the most part, employees of the companies that have gone astray. They're people who have documents, they can bring receipts, they can prove what they know. The, you know, the kind of complaints we would submit are harder to do in, in the sense that they're harder to evaluate because it's a question of how useful the information would be. And since most SEC investigations take forever, it's likely that they would find the information anyway on their own eventually. One thing that did surprise me is 40% of all cases go to outside analysts and people like you and Bill and um, Yolanda Holtzi, people who do not work for the companies. When you think of a whistleblower, you think of insiders, but basically a little over 40% go to people like you uh, who know the industry and are able to spot frauds and root out the fraud the best they can. But the, are these people analysts like us or are they analysts like the people who work for major trading firms? And there's the problem with the program. They won't say. It, it it's back, goes back to the secrecy we've seen over and over again. All they say is 40% are outsiders, but they don't define it and they provide no details on what that really means and what type of service they provide to the SEC. Because I would guess that a lot of them are short-selling firms, for that matter. Uh, there are a couple of, you know, there have always been some bad ones, but there are some very good ones. And they do excellent research. But even that, I mean, that makes some people unhappy, the fact that they might be, you know, validated. And as, as you know, crooks can apply, too. Exactly. And how far they go. Um, what do you think of that type of contribution, Bill? Well, I, I think that we need to understand that the purpose of the whistleblower program 
was that it generally arose in response to the horrible fraud of Bernard Madoff. And as such, what we learned is that when an individual like Harry Markopoulos attempted to blow the whistle on Madoff, he was dismissed as a crank, he was ignored, and as a result, a relatively modest fraud became larger and larger and larger. So what is the purpose of a whistleblower program? The whistleblower program is to augment the capacity of a government agency such as the SEC. I always explain that it's sort of like a policeman walking a beat. You have your snitches. And if using a snitch makes a neighborhood safer, no one cares if the snitch is a drug addict. No one cares if the snitch is a prostitute. No one cares if the snitch is somebody that is a competitor of one bodega across the street from the other. So the point of the whistleblower program is not that we should be expecting that we're going to be dealing with choir boys and girls, but that we want to get people to give information to the SEC that the SEC does not have the capacity to obtain on its own. Have you seen that the SEC has a is reluctant to use some of these outsiders? They seem to want to generate or pretend that they're generating their own information. They feel it's almost a slight that somebody else has to do their job for them. Is that a wrong approach? But I think that is the approach from everyone I've talked to. Well, you, you nailed it on the head. Uh, I, I'm sort of the SEC's worst nightmare because at one point in our career, I was an attorney for two regulators. Um, I was married and still married to a woman who was a federal prosecutor for 33 years. I know how government regulation works and how it doesn't work. And the problem with most government agencies is that they operate in what is referred to as silos. The SEC thinks it's competing with the CFTC. The SEC thinks it's competing with the Department of Justice. The Department of Justice is competing with FINRA. All of these regulators that we have on Wall Street, federal, state, self-regulators, they would like you to believe that they all work together, but they don't. They view themselves as in competition with each other. We see time and time again, we see that these investigations take too long. Why? Because they don't share information with each other. They sit in the, I, I have had clients who have spoken to multiple agencies. And it's very obvious that they call you back privately and they don't want the other agency to know what happens. Uh, so at the end of the day, the public is not being served by the program because the folks that are operating the program view it as a beauty pageant and a popularity contest. Janice encountered the same thing quite a bit. She'll submit tips, very strong, very well-researched, that result in companies being delisted or suspended, but she doesn't hear back from the agency. It's almost a black hole of information. Um, is that, that's been your experience, well, what's funniest, though, is, is when you do hear back from the agency. Uh, I wrote to them about an attorney from Chicago, the Chicago area who's now disbarred, and because they had subpoenaed information from him in federal court and about a matter that I could shed some light on, I thought. So I wrote to the guy who was in Atlanta, and he'd been there for many years, and he 
wrote back saying rather hostily, what is your interest in this matter? Uh, perhaps we should talk. And then he called me and our conversation had almost entirely to do with the fact that it were with him asking me constantly what my interest in this matter was. Why is that important? I, I, I have no idea. Did I know the person in question? Was I invested in the company? Da, 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 da. And I answered him. I mean, I had nothing to hide as far as this was concerned. But he refused to believe that anyone would just contribute information. And that's the thing. That's what so many people I've talked to, whether they're attorneys or outside analysts or just people who are trying to tip the SEC off. They repeatedly talk the encounter is unpleasant or adversarial or secretive. Bill, you actually brought a case that led to an award of, I think it was $1.5 or so. I know it was from an insider, but can you talk about the experience you had and your client had in trying to deal with them? And how long did it take from the first tip to the payment till you finally got paid? Sure. Well, that case was memorable. My initial contact to the office of the whistleblower was, okay, so when we deal with enforcement, the enforcement staff that I dealt with, very professional, very courteous. The problem was that after the award was rendered by way of settlement, and it was a very, very significant award. We then waited over two years after the SEC had been paid. There was no appeals that could have been conducted because by way of settlement, you waive it. There were no other defendants. The case had settled. It had been on television. It had been in the papers. And more importantly, the cash had cleared. It was the SEC had it. When I then contacted Office of Whistleblower, to ask, had my claim been submitted to the claims review staff for consideration? They wouldn't answer me. They said they're not allowed to give that out. It's confidential, which is a lie. That is not what Dodd-Frank says. That is a fabrication. When I would ask them roughly, how much longer do you think, days, weeks, or months, they wouldn't answer. Finally, when they rendered the award, Um, I asked a very normal question, which is, well, roughly how long do you think it'll take from when the award's been rendered until my client will be paid? And that was a state secret. They wouldn't tell me that either. So as Janice has recounted in her interviews, and as I would confirm, there is a degree of hostility that comes from the staff, which I understand. It's because the staff is used to dealing with criminals and fraudsters. So when they see somebody that's a whistleblower, their mindset is inculcated to view them as a crook, a thief, a fraudster. They don't have the ability to adjust their cultural mindset to recognize that these are people that are helping the SEC, that are providing information. And that's the frustrating part. So that kind of is a disincentive, I imagine. A massive one. Imagine you're a law firm. And you're prepared to take a case on a one-third contingency fee. There is economics for taking these cases on a contingency, which the way the SEC is handling it and the type of docket that they've developed is becoming a counter to taking on these cases, which is why we see a very small number of law firms that continually take these cases because it's a law of numbers. Whereas smaller firms, which often have more expertise in a particular area, such as trading 
or um, IPOs, they may not decide to take the case because they don't want to wait five or six years. That's the that's the problem. We're seeing signs that it is slowing down. The program has grown exponentially in the first 10 years. Um, and now, for the first time, the amount of new tips was essentially flat for this year after uh, tripling over the last three years. The amount of money given out dropped 60% this year. And people I've talked to, like Janice and others, and many, many attorneys said they've stopped dealing with the program because it is exactly what Janice said, a lottery ticket. To be fair to them, their counter-argument would be, we have a lot in the pipeline, so just wait. We have a lot of cases they take years to investigate. You're going to see the fruits of these investigations in two, three, four years. John, I've been been working on Wall Street for 40 years, and that story hasn't changed. That's 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 the excuse that every regulator gives when they're caught not doing their job to the best of their ability. Oh, it's COVID, or it's a recession. Janice, you've contributed long before there was even a program. You've worked for 25 years. You've given tips that have been meaningful and led to real, real, real consequences. Do you even participate in the program anymore? It's just not worth it. I mean, you know, nothing happens, even when certain things have been done. And with penny companies, you know, which are what I usually do, if they think they aren't going to get any money, then they're not going to investigate terribly hard. They're going to take the kind of action that may stop the company, but it won't involve a lot of work on their part. Now, I can't in a way blame them for that, but then there are some penny perps who really deserve to be punished. But what would you do to reform it? You're, you're suddenly, um, Gensler, you're in charge of the SEC. What would you do? To, re- to reform this, based on what you see? It, it comes down to one word. It starts with T. It's called transparency. I think all that whistleblowers and their counsel ask is some transparency from the SEC. Where is my tips? How is the case progressing? When will you submit an award? Uh, that's it. And as long as individuals feel that the system is transparent, and they're being given a fair shake for the energy and effort they put in, people like Janice are not going to be deterred. They're not going to be enervated simply by trying to protect the public. That was Janice Schell and Bill Singer talking with Bloomberg Law reporter John Holland. And that'll do it for today's episode of On the Merits. It was produced by myself, David Schultz. Our editor is Andrew Satter, and our executive producer is Josh Block. Visit our website, news.bloomberglaw.com, for more coverage. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. An individual's race should not be used to help him or harm him in his life's endeavors. A pair of lawsuits has made its way to the Supreme Court, and the decision could dramatically change just who gets into which college. Bloom is effectively using the Asian community as pawns. Every lawsuit needs a villain. To mask an anti-Black and anti-Latino agenda. Does this demoralize me? No, it doesn't demoralize me. This season on Uncommon Law, we'll explore the arguments and the people driving this latest battle over affirmative action. Can the Constitution be used to remedy society's ills? I'm the only person in class who has to raise my hand and say, okay, well, actually, here's how this affects people that look like me. Does the 14th Amendment's Equal Protection Clause prohibit 
all discrimination based on race. You let somebody in because of their race, you're keeping somebody else out because of their race. There might have been two or three Latinos, including me. And so somehow that's too much, somehow that goes too far. It's hard not to take that very personally. Coming October 25th, part one of a three-part series on affirmative action. What's being decided is whether black and brown people are going to be excluded in significant numbers. Only on Uncommon Law from Bloomberg Industry Group.